This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight we are approaching climate change sideways via the theatre and via one of our most creative journalists. Later in the show, Elizabeth Farrelly is going to read us her article about going to the Archibald exhibition and seeing the portrait of Josh Frydenberg staring at her. I'm hoping that we can get Mr Frydenberg on a show in September. I've just heard from them today. I was going to shame them on air saying they've never replied to me, but in fact they got back to me and said, yes, he's possibly going to, he'd be happy to talk to us perhaps in September. So that'll be interesting so that we, I feel these people in public life need to explain to the public, you know, where are we going with the climate change policy? But There have been a few voices in the media, you know, cautiously optimistic that Frydenberg will promote renewable energy and make a transition away from coal. So, indeed, if you listen to our broadcast about uh, Box Hill Town Hall just before the election, you could see a slight movement with him and Mark Butler, you know, kind of seriously taking on this big audience of climate activists who were there. And uh, they couldn't bring themselves to say they'd cancel fossil fuel subsidies, of course, but... They were agreeing to work on it, and I know we're clutching at straws here, but it'll be lovely, I think, to look forward to speaking to him and um, hearing what he has to say. Meanwhile, the real action is with the citizens and the community, as you know. We can't wait for government to do this for us. And tonight we've got... um, some people here who are putting on a show in Northcote on the 11th of August, that's Thursday week. Um, We're going to talk to someone from the local agency called Positive Charge, that's Lucy Best, and she's going to be one of the panellists at that show. Um, There'll be a panel talking about um, climate action and positive solutions to the climate problems, which are very, very severe problems. And then... Some actors will take over and they will listen to the audience and it's playback theatre. So we've got one of the directors from playback theatre, Danny Diesendorf, with us in the studio to tell us how the theatre can help us make breakthroughs in our climate thinking. So the theatre, positive charge agency, and then Elizabeth Ferry, this poetic journalist. So I hope you have a, a sort of more oblique idea of climate action from tonight's show. So welcome, Danny. It's a great pleasure to be here, Vivian. The show you're putting on is called Creating a Climate for Change. Tell us about it. Sure. Well, the thinking behind it is is that 
uh, people uh, people need to be involved when they come to an event that deals with something like climate. I mean, in fact, with any event that has a really uh, effect on their lives. So uh, it, just having a panel and a, a question and answer is not enough. Um, we need to hear from the audience and we need to hear the audience's stories and experiences and uh, really get to what they're thinking from a range of perspectives, not just the the academic knowledge, but their personal experiences around that issue. And that is very motivating for people because they see that they're part of a community uh, and they start to see where they connect with other people and how their power is connected with other people who are there as well. What sort of stories do people tell in the playback theatre? Well, it's it's hugely varied. So our company's been around for 30 years and most of the work that we do is with uh, community groups and even with corporate businesses. And it's a lot about building community by people hearing each other's stories and then from that getting a clearer idea where they want to go together. Um, so last year, also for Science Week, uh, Melbourne Playback uh did a performance about climate change with a with a different panel, um, and we got an amazing range of stories and thoughts. So we heard from activists who'd been in the space working away for thirty or forty years, and were getting rather weary. Um, we heard from young, up and coming uh, activists and people just getting involved in the. Sp- in the climate space for the first time and that was very invigorating for um, the seasoned activists. Uh, Of course, there were people that weren't activists at all who were just um, reflecting on the topic from the point of view of... uh, One woman was reflecting on it as a parent um, of a small child and thinking about how to discuss that subject with her kids And hearing something like that, that's so personal, is very motivating. It gives a... I know for me, hearing a story like that, it gives a really clear focus as to why I should get out of bed Mm -hmm. and do something today about uh, protecting the climate. Well, I'd like to know how you prepare the actors for this. I know they have to be very sensitive to lots of different issues, but how do you prepare them for the fact that some of the audience are going to be very anguished about this? This is a subject that most people... Well, I think, Jane, you often say, oh, we're going to hell in a handcart sometimes after our program. Yeah. <laughs> I say, oh, Jane, don't say that. <laughs> you know, be positive. But, mm. but that's, in fact, where a lot of people are coming from, extreme gloom. So how do you prepare the actors? Well... We train every week together and we uh, hear each other's stories. So we're always practising this skill of improvising people's real lives. And we go into other spaces where there's both light-hearted stories and very quite heavy stories. So we've, uh, for example, worked with um, uh, people that work in hospitals and uh, nurses that work with people who are dying. Um, as well as um, very joyous uh, spaces. So it really has to be part of our uh, toolkit to work with any story that comes our way. Um, and in a way, to be naive, to come in naive, to not have preconceptions, just to listen really closely and try to get to the essence of what each story is about. Well, 
I think one of the bigger contexts for this, that people come with their questions and their stories, is the media. The media gives us, to me, very hard-headed scientific information. I think a lot of the journalists may be a bit cynical about the political process, so they just stick to the scientific information and dump it on you. And you get bogged down in, in politics. You know, up to the last election, we didn't get any really meaningful movement towards achieving those goals at Paris. They wouldn't even say we'll stop the uh, subsidy for coal, you know, that you just feel very um, conflicted when you hear the discourse, both from the journalists and from the politicians. And I'd like to know how art and this particular theatrical format, like a dramatisation of individual stories, how does that break through, do you think, the discourse and add another dimension to it? So people, we need innovation, as the Prime Minister says, and we need, posit- you know, we need people to, be, to use their creativity and really get onto the subject of climate action oh rather than walk away in despair. I've heard a saying, um, how do you eat an elephant? Just one bite at a time. Yes. And I think um, dealing with something like climate change, one human experience and story at a time is a great way to go about it. And particularly if you've got a panel in the room who've got experience and successes around getting up projects and programs like Lucy's, which is actually helped a lot of people cut their carbon emissions and has also started to, you know, uh, get some systemic change happening. In fact, all of our panellists have had an influence on making systemic change. From hearing about that, other people in the audience start to realise where their connections are to that change, not just the, the personal change, that that's important as well, mm. but also the systemic change that... For example, there was a story um, last year about somebody who'd urged their workplace to divest its bank accounts from a bank that, um, you know, uh, banked in fossils, fossil fuels. And they were one person in a workplace of 50. And through personal conversations, um, the conversation became not why, but why not? Mm. Someone wants to do this. Well, why not? And it happened. And so that was quite a large sum of money that their workplace um, had in the bank that all got moved into fossil-free investments. So uh, that's part of a potential tidal wave of change. Yes, well, maybe um, you've brought in Lucy, and we have Lucy sitting here in the studio. She's from an agency called Positive Charge, and I'll ask her a bit more about that agency later. But, Lucy, what do you think about that, you know, changing the levers of the culture? You know, the culture we live in, which is created by school, by literature, by especially by media, I think. How do we throw in a different thing into the mix that makes people feel energised? Well, I think, I think largely through stories, which is why this playback creative production is so exciting because it's hearing stories and then seeing the stories be set to real life. Um, and with Positive Charge, it's all about action. So instead of talking about the big picture stuff that is possibly too far away or too big and scary to think about, mm. it's about the, the small things that you can do and feel empowered by and the stories that we can share that, of people that have done those actions that normalise and 
and give a positive spin on the action instead of thinking about I'm doing this because doom and gloom. I'm doing this because good things and change and and we can all be part of that movement. So I think stories are really important. Well, one thing I noticed in the previous election, you know, the Tony Abbott election, there was a big scare about electricity prices and everyone was terrified that the electricity prices were going up. Well, they went up anyway, even though we abandoned the carbon tax and all of that. Big scam, I think, but... I noticed on your website that you help pensioners get solar panels, and that seems a very good news story, that people who think, oh, I can't afford it and I'm now on a pension, so how can I possibly, you know, going forward, who knows what the costs will be. But you've helped them get into the solar. So yeah. tell us about that. So that was with Darabin City Council. Um, Darabin Council were lucky they had some money to, to invest into this program, and we were lucky enough to be the people that, that coordinated and, and put into place the program but they the first run of it it was called solar saver and the saver is with a dollar sign instead of an s um and it was pension card holder households so anyone who was paying their rates on a concession got a letter from council saying would you be interested in getting solar through a a program where you get a low low interest loan and you pay it back through your rates um and then they got an incredible response of people that wanted to do that and through the first round we got 300 households solar and then they're actually we're just completing round two so all up i think we're close to 500 pension card households that will be paying off their solar over 10 years and the savings have been calculated so that they will save more than they're paying in their increased rate Mm. Um, and that's definitely a model that we're talking to lots of other councils about of course the biggest thing is finding the money to set it up Mm. but it's it addresses the social justice issue as well as the environmental issue of climate change do you find that you get good media on a story like that i mean do people want to tell that story i hadn't heard it before but do you is it hard to tell that story to the mainstream media yes (laughs) this is the short answer um it's hard to tell that story to the mainstream media because um well because it gets viewed as a political issue um and the mainstream media may already have their own political bent on the stories that they're interested in um it's also because the mainstream media may not quite see the benefit and it's um you know it's a small to them it's a small story it's which is why then it's our job to Mm. actually find you know the the man who lost his wife is at home all day you know living in the home that was the the family home and struggling to pay the bills and not wanting to move and now here he is and he's happy he's got solar on he's saving on his bills all that thanks to council everybody feels good and and that's the better story but yeah i we haven't had a huge amount of response from Mm. mainstream media that this is a story that we have to get out through our partnerships with councils and through Mm. our own networks okay well this is good isn't it these are the stories that we're telling here we've got a big audience i'm sure they'll pass it on to their friends but it's it's worth telling and i I think we had a psychologist from norway a few weeks back and he said look the big problem is that the media is 70 percent scientific gloom and doom and and horrible scenarios all of which are true but if it was 70% the other way of what people are doing, all of these groups all around the world are doing, there's loads in many countries that are doing this sort of work, um, you would an- energise the change rather than disincentive, you know, putting a big kibosh on the whole thing. I think getting a lot of people in one room is really encouraging too, getting people talking to each other. Um, a lot of organisation happens through the net these days and other things, but I think that I think a lot of truth comes out of people talking face-to-face and listening face-to-face. And a lot of possibilities start to emerge. Uh, So that's why this event 
uh, well, that's why playback works the way it does. Mm. So it functions that way in an organisation too because organisations have their own equivalent of the media. There's mm. the newsletter and there's the official line and that's not always very mm. useful because it's not always very honest. Uh, it, what you get when you get a whole bunch of people in a room hearing each other's stories is much more honest, mm. much more motivating place to be as well. Mm. And particularly um, with, with this event, we've made the effort to have um, people from the organisations having some stalls as well at the end of the event mm. so that if you're feeling like you want to get more active, you can go and talk to someone from 350.org or Positive Charge or Beyond Zero Emissions or some other organisations that are interested and get involved, get organised. That's great. Listeners, we're talking to Danny Diesendorf and Lucy Best, and this program is about creating a climate for change, which is a show that both of those are contributing to at Northcote Town Hall Thursday the 11th of August at 7pm and you can get there by tram I just checked this morning you go on the 86 tram and you get straight there so 7pm Northcote Town Hall it sounds easy and I'm really looking forward to it it sounds very mm, encouraging you know it's a very warm sort of sound now listen I, I love theatre and I like ritual as well I like the music you know the concerts the things that unleash a kind of different level of emotion and I heard about a thing that's coming up in September with the Pacific Island churches they've asked for the month of September to be a month of praying for the Pacific and a lot of people don't pray and don't go to church but being in sympathy with those people for whom that's really important I think would be a great sign of solidarity and so they're going to have this Sundays in September and the idea is to connect the communities the Pacific Island communities with the other the rest of the Australian community with ritual and music and films showing us what is happening to those islands that are going to be the first line of disappearing places as climate change encroaches and I'd like to know both of you what are they you've talked about just the room you've talked about the difficulty of the mainstream media but the stories what are the cultural events things that happen on that cultural emotional level would you like to see to build up trust and resilience because I think we're going into a dark time how pretty obviously we are we're going to be communities need to be resilient they need to have trust and a kind of working relationship you know so if the floods and typhoons and droughts affect them what sort of cultural mm, help can be offered I think that anything that gets people together and talking to each other is has got to be positive um when you mention ritual, that strikes a chord for me. And we, I mean, the format of playback has an element of ritual about it as well, because there's a, you know, there's a time for listening to the audience member. Um, then there's a, you know, a time for the playing back and the performance, which has got music as well. Um, and then there's a time for um, bouncing off that to the next person who wants to speak. But... I'm not really answering your question. Um, I, I just, I, I just think, yeah, get people together, uh, and we don't really know what will come out of all of those gatherings. Yeah, and even the one you were just talking about. But I'm sure that by getting a lot of people uh, focused uh, in on the same issue at the same time, we'll uh, we'll have all kinds of effects of yeah. other. Uh, other organising that will happen with those people. 
I was just trying to loosen it up a bit because I think I go to a lot of meetings that are the format a knowledgeable speaker at the front or several, a panel of them, and then a Q&A. And the Q&A has this kind of choked feeling that people have got so many questions to ask and so much to say. And then the MC is always saying, thank you, keep it to just no, just a comment, don't make it a comment. And there's a kind of a um, horrible tension there. And I feel there's really an important space where people, those people who have come to the meeting need to somehow be heard. And I don't know how you fit that into a time. What are the... What do you well, think, I was, I was thinking about, um, so our channel, we work directly with councils and then through through the councils we disseminate our communications and that's kind of our leverage. Um, and I was thinking about the idea of people getting in the room together and it's and it's reminding people that, of all the other people that, that you're a part of this with. So with council it's geographical. Mm. It's, you know, you're from Preston or Darabin or you're, you know wherever you're from, you're mm. part of this other thing and these are your neighbours, these are people just like you and having that conversation. I love the idea that, there's so much back and forth with playback that, you know, we'll speak and the audience will speak and we'll share and then this will get sort of presented back to us mm. and it's a conversation. Mm. It's a theatrical conversation. So so if it's having a conversation instead of a Q&A with yeah. someone saying, I don't want to hear your comment, I just want a question yes. for, the, for the authority that's standing yes. at the front yes. of the room, it's let's chat afterwards over yeah. a cup of tea or a yeah. beer or whatever, yeah. you know, let's keep the conversation going and remind everyone that we're all in this together. Yes. Well, I think training is connected to what you're talking about as well so that once you get people together, there's the possibility to really find out what their strengths are and what they're interested in through those conversations and then they can start to work with each other to train up some more some further skills uh find out more learn more uh, and go from there and i'm you know i'm sure that that'll happen as part of the prayer event that people mm. will start to share skills too yes and hopefully from climate for change there'll be further development Okay, we've just got time for a community announcement and then we'll come back to talk to Lucy Best about the um, Positive Charge organisation. If you're not absolutely furious, you're really not paying enough attention. The world's a shambles. So come along and join us in being active, and together we can make this world a more ethical place to live. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show and tonight we're talking about creating a climate for change. Now one of the organisations that's contributing to that show on the 11th of August is um, Positive Charge. Now I hadn't heard about this organisation, I rang them up this morning and I learned that um, they work with 17 councils in Victoria and eight councils in New South Wales. So that's a large number of people and quite a bit of local government power involved there. So Lucy Best is with us and I'd like to ask her a bit more specifically about what they do. She's the Community Engagement Manager with Positive Charge. Tell us what that involves. 
So we work, I suppose our client is councils and councils, a lot of councils increasingly are having a climate change policy, which is around emissions reductions. And we'll see it in uh, waste management or them putting solar and divesting in council buildings. Um, and Positive Charge has the role of engaging the community, the, the geographical community of the, that the council belongs to to do the same. Um, so it's something that councils don't necessarily have funding to do themselves. They, they enlist us and we try and support households and communities to do it themselves. So we essentially we're an information service and we explain to people what action they can take and how they can take it. But we also work with suppliers now where we do a procurement. So we'll, um, so for example, with solar, we'll just say any solar suppliers that want to work with us with communities through councils you can apply to be our supplier and then we go through this very rigorous mm. procurement where we check out all their products and services and warranties and everything else and we say okay we're happy to recommend them so when people say okay i'm ready to go solar we we can say well these you can go with these guys or not if you don't want you know, but we they can talk to us they can always access us for advice and it means councils can if someone phones council help desk and says my hot water service is broken what's the most energy efficient one I can get they say call positive charge all the way through to you know I'm renovating my house how can I make it as energy efficient as possible so we're we're essentially advisory service through council but we it's all about action and emissions reductions well you've got some runs on the board haven't you and would you like to tell us about that. So um, I just I just finalised the end of financial year report, so they're fairly fresh in my mind. We installed 2.4 megawatts of solar through our solar buy, buy programs, um, and some of those were larger installs for schools and mm-hmm. businesses. Uh, we can attribute, so through solar and other action that people fed back to us that they did take, mm-hmm. uh, an emissions reductions of 64,000 tonnes. So it's pretty big for just one financial year, and there's, we're a staff of four. Mm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was pretty chuffed when I, when I finished the reports and got to send them off. It felt like yeah. we are actually doing something. Yeah, so this doesn't require federal government or state government to change any policies or anything, does it? No, that's right. So I did write a piece that's on our in our latest news on our, our website just the other day about um, how that very feeling you were talking about before, that we can become a bit disillusioned and, and disempowered. Um, and when we look from the top down, it seems mm. like nothing's happening. But this is about change at a real grassroots level, and it's local government and local government who already have those climate change policies in place or strategies that they're working on mm. um, and that we can support everyone to take action on their own doorstep. Mm. If you had more money, what more could you do? I'd love to see more of the Solar Saver type program and I think I can speak for the team on yes. that one. So, um, you know, it's lovely that we can speak to people who, you know, are building a house, renovating a house, got some money to put solar on, but mm. the people who are going to suffer the most um, through not just the increase of the cost of energy and, and warming and cooling their homes, mm. but they're going to need to warm and cool their homes even more because of the effects of climate change. Exactly. They're the people who are going to suffer the most. So we'd love to do more social justice work and get to the people mm. that need it the most. I think uh, the one of the most moving programs that Jane and I did was on the heat waves. Do you remember mm. that, Jane? The um, person there described people in council flats just like hot boxes. And I heard someone talk the other day in Darwin. The you know the council buildings for um, you know low rent accommodation were they had they required twenty four hour um, air conditioning. Yeah, and who can afford that? And that, uh, they they could have been built in a much more uh, effective way. Yeah, our, our um, parent organisation, the Moreland Energy Foundation, um, we have a big um, consultancy team, and we do projects where we actually go into those those <coughs> commission housing flats and have a look and do assessments. And it's not just I mean, there's effects that 
are very obvious people having to run their air conditioner all, mm. all the time but some of these people are suffering with physical disabilities or mental mm. health issues and it's confusing for them or they're not able to look after themselves yeah. and then they're put in these homes where it's impossible for them to look after yes. themselves and it's actually it's it's really quite dangerous yes that's so that's a lot of preventative health work there needed well what about um, I like the word positive in your name. As I said before, we always talk about gloom and doom. Do you think that people who do actually take this climate action, who, who think, right, I'm preparing for the future, I'm having solar panels, I'm going to stop contributing to the problem by having coal-fired power, um, do you think that actually makes them happier people and therefore a bit more effective and resilient? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I think it does. And I, and going back to what Danny was saying about the, the people that can be the, the, the trainers we we call it finding our champions we're always mm-hmm. looking for the champions we're looking for the people who took action feel positive not just about the impact they've had on their bill or mm-hmm. the comfort levels in their home but that they're doing that they're taking action and that's one of the stories that we always try to share so what, what do you hear from people what do they say to you um i going back to the the talking about people that can't heat their homes well or easily it's it's so much about comfort and feeling safe they're the stories that um are often surprising it's not just someone saying i saved a thousand dollars on my bill per Mm. year and that's good it's actually saying i feel happier and more comfortable and Mm. safer in my home Mm. Mm. i just had a thought on that too that it's important to hear the stories of those champions but also the the person who's not particularly capable the ordinary the ordinary person most of us are bumbling through our lives in some way having a bit of trouble managing um even you know our bills or improving our house so it know works efficiently hearing the success stories from those people that's important that's important to hear as well because it's really inspiring to Mm. know anyone can make those changes Mm. Mm. and a lot of people think they can't a lot of people think that there's nothing they can do or um going back to those hot boxes Mm. you know Mm. i'm i'm a tenant i could get kicked out any time or i can't afford to do these things my landlord won't do them for me and we can just sometimes give them some advice for example there's um you know some reflective foil that they could put on their windows that would reflect the heat back out of the apartment mm. and it can reduce the heat impact coming in by 30 to 40 percent mm. and it you know it costs 80 dollars and they can stick it on the window and they don't need anyone's permission and they didn't know that they just thought they had to suffer yeah so it's all practical changes but it's about do you mention climate change is that a, an approach or is there a way around it i think there's different communications for different people i mean people there's yeah, there's different communications for different people and also for different councils. So as I said, that's our, that's our number one client is councils. And some councils are quite open that they're doing this because it's clim- their climate change strategy, whereas others it will... The, so I'll work putting a letter together that the council will send out mm-hmm. and some councils will say, you know, we believe ca- climate change is an important issue. That's mm-hmm. why we've put solar on our, built, our the library that you may yes. have seen. We encourage you to do the same. If you can't or if you have other stories, do feel free to call Positive Charge. Yeah. Other councils will say... Solar panels are saving council, th- you know, thirteen thousand dollars a year, and they can help you save money too because the council are aware that their demographic may not be engaged in climate change. So, at the beginning, you said something about com- approaching climate change sideways. Yes. So that's kind of how we we, we approach climate change with stealth with yes. some people. Yes. Oh. Well, I've learned that on radio too that not everyone wants to talk about climate change all the time. Like me, they sort of um, don't want to hear about that, but they're very interested in these positive stories like you know like you're telling us yeah and we can talk about the weather and we can talk about the increase in electricity bills and we don't have to talk about why no no okay well look if listeners wanted to get your newsletter for example how could they subscribe to it 
So they could hop on our website, which is www.positivecharge.com.au, and there's a sign-up button at the top, a pink yeah. button, and they can sign up to our e-news there. Um, it comes out about once a month, mm. um, and they can also give us a call if there's something, a specific thing they'd like to talk about, that there's concerns in their home or things they're considering doing and not sure where to go or what to do. Yes, and they might not know if their council is part of your network. How, how would they That's go right. They so, again, on the website we do have all the councils listed, but it's, yes. we, I'd love to hear from people either way way because if I get lots of people from a council that isn't subscribed then I can let that council know yes okay well could you just summarize what what services that councils can do it's to just get solar panels is it only that or insulation efficiency or other what 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 are what's the range of services that you think councils can lead on um, so the ones that councils sort of have already subscribed to with us are the solar, uh, draft proofing and insulation, and lighting replacement for halogen down lights. And that's through the VEAT program, which is mm. actually a, a state government program. Um, but we are councils are interested in finding out what the next thing is, and we're, we're kind of on the ground trying to figure that out. So we're hopeful that uh, heat pumps for hot water and possibly for heating as well will be a big one. Switching houses off gas, which I know BZE mm. have done a lot of mm. research on, um, as people lose their feed-in tariffs, a lot of people are going to lose their feed-in tariff on their solar at the end of this year. Battery storage is going to be the hot topic. We'll see where that goes. Um, and, you know, if there was demand, then we could look at windows. We could look at all sorts of other things that people can do on their building shell. But draft proofing and insulation is one of those ones that people can do um, in varying degrees, depending on budget and tenancy. Okay, and so listen, you've been listening to Lucy Best, and you can hear more of what she has to say at... Northcote Town Hall on the 11th of August. I keep promoting it because I, I myself never can find a pencil in time to write it down. So it's the 11th of August, Northcote Town Hall at 7 o'clock. And we're nearly ready to talk to Elizabeth Farrelly. But um, before that, I wondered if either of you would like to share some stories about um, people you've won over. I imagine there are some councils who think, oh, none of my business, all of this. This is not the traditional council area. <laughs> Could you tell me that? Or, or Danny, with you just think of some positive stories that, that you, you'd like to tell us. We have just a few more minutes. Um, the, the one that springs to my mind is I remember speaking to a gentleman who said that he didn't believe that climate change was human-induced. And I said, but it doesn't really matter what's caused it. We can do something about it. And it was like no one had said it to him that way before. And, and then he was interested in, okay, well, what can we do? And it, he'd sort of forgotten, he'd got stuck on the argument of whether or not this is a human-induced thing yeah. and forgotten that it's happening and we're actually discussing action that we can take. So yes. that was, I felt like that was a real win. And so I'm sure you use that wording to, to other people yeah. later when it comes. But what about councils? Do you get councils that are, think, oh, you know, none, no one in our council area is going to be interested yes. in that? I think that's the biggest resistance with council is, is rather than them not feeling this is an important issue, it's them not perceiving that their community will be interested in mm. it. Um, and that's where, we, you know, the more runs we get on the board, the more we can prove that they will. Um, Wyndham, for example, has one of the highest penetration of solar in all areas, in all metro councils. I think it's around 17%. <coughs> excuse me. Um, and yet they st we still got a huge number of households responding to our letter and wanting to put solar on yeah. their households because I think it's normalised. So, in fact, having more didn't, didn't mean that people weren't interested. It meant they were more interested and more engaged, and that council were very surprised that that happened. Okay, and I bet councils want to be a bit better than the next council, aren't they? There's a healthy bit of competitiveness, that's right. 
There was a funny moment uh, when Playback was working with um, uh, with a, a private company, uh, where after a whole bunch of different people had been talking about um, the, that business dealing with climate, one bloke said, "Oh, look." I don't really believe in this whole climate thing. And then the facilitator asked him a few more questions and he qualified it and he said, well, I don't really believe in it now, but I think I will in the future. (laughs) And uh, that was actually a huge step for him. And the whole audience um, cracked up because he'd completely, um, in a way, admitted that just by having to think about it, he'd been shutting it out. He'd been living in this contradictory state of mind that he was going to be willing to believe in it at some point, (laughs) but not right now. He was going to put it off. So, yeah, that was was a huge shift because then by the time he'd sat down from telling his story he'd he'd got rid of that yeah. facade really yeah. okay well thank you very much we might come back at the end with Danny and Lucy but now we're going to Sydney and we've got a journalist on the phone Fairfax journalist called Elizabeth Farrelly she's one of my favourite journalists I think she's one of the best her weekly articles draw the images that we live with every day whether in New South Wales we just had terrible um, storms which swept away there's one image of a swimming pool swept out onto the beach and lots of houses sort of more or less destroyed um, by the storm and trees have been cut down, massive ancient trees have been cut down for a tramway and she draws all these images together and makes some sort of commentary on the state of play, the state of the soul of the state of the city of Sydney and the state of New South Wales. But I feel that Elizabeth Farrelly always has climate change at the front of her mind. Um, Like the actors we've heard about tonight, her approach is sort of poetic and sensitive even oblique, and I've asked her to read her most recent article called The Coal Hard Truth, is that it's got to go. And it's I said at the head of the program, it's about her looking at Josh Frydenberg's portrait in the Archibald Prize. So are you there, Elizabeth? Yes, hi, Vivian. Thank you for reading that on air. Um, listeners will know a lot of the people you talk about because we have interviewed them on this show. You mm. talk about the traditional owners up near where Adani wants to mine and the Liverpool farmers um, where Xinhua is going to mine and the people mm. at Tarwan Park where they were doing restoring degraded land. And we've interviewed all those people so our listeners will know who you're talking about. So would you like to just tell us now, read us the, the uh, article you wrote? Sure. Um, among the 50-odd portraits in this year's Archibald, two are standout, although not in a good way. Both depict sitting politicians, but together they reveal us, or what is embarrassingly close to becoming an Australian world attitude. Dominate, exploit, go. Eat, shoot, leave, brackets, the rubbish. Contemporary portraiture peers into the city's soul. Abandoning the bombast and braggadocio of traditional portraiture, It seeks some inner truth, even frailty. To browse the archies, therefore, is to be brushed with sadness and self-doubt, as much as charm, cheek and chutzpah. This is its redemption. Against that milieu, two portraits stand in contrast, picked out not by skill or insight, but by a smug opacity more aligned with that older habit, portrait as propaganda. We, they seem to say, are the fossilised relics of that braggart tradition. We stand for commerce, not creativity, patriarchy, not openness, exploitation, not love. I came to them blind, without recognition. The first of a man in a field of wheat stubble is called simply Troy. 
no doubt aiming for heroism by association. Heroic battles, all that. Although, remember Hector, the heels? The man, suited and bespectacled, is Deputy Premier Troy Grant. The colouring is vaguely Andrew Wyeth. But there's no romance here, no sweetness. The wheat is cut to length and stubby, and the man, somewhat bizarrely, occupies not the ground, but a chair. His right hand holds, literally centre field, a police hat and crucifix, all of it bespeaking unrivaled dominance over a landscape that is anyway monocultured and chemicaled into submission. Not a tree in sight. Then there's the gaze. Even sitting, the man manages to look down upon us, as if to prove that we, people and nature both, are just a tad below his natural field of vision. The other portrait, even more enigmatically titled Polymath, shows Josh Frydenberg, a.k.a. Mr. Cole, grinning affably, suited and sated-looking, like a banker after a fancy lunch. Around his balding head is a soft white halo of, quote, outstanding achievements. True, the word polymath usually implies scholarship broad and deep, a Barry Jones, a Raymond Tallis, a Plato. But I'm more interested in how the picture's materials, copper, wood, charcoal, are said by the artist to represent Frydenberg's then position as Minister for Resources. It's what we do, extract, use, exploit. So I was standing there, meeting Frydenberg's depthless gaze, thinking, seriously? The moral case for coal? When he was announced as our new environment minister, and Matt Carnarvon, who wants public funding for climate sceptics, minister for resources. Was this some kind of sick joke? Had Australia been very bad in some former existence to deserve such punishment? Did these people even breathe air? It's six years since Malcolm Turnbull crossed the floor for climate change. Since then, as predicted, storms and land loss, fires and ice melt and sea rise and heat waves. Even the Pope passes the moral meaning of climate change. Plus, in Australia, says a new government report, 2,200 annual deaths from particulate air pollution. Yet, on we go, spamming our cities with more, bigger roads, our countryside with vast mines, our climate with fossil fuels. Mike Baird may cast himself as warm, dry and green. Planning Minister Rob Stokes may declare that, quote, people are the heart of the planning system. But this same planning system holds our loveliest farms, prettiest valleys, most fertile soils and cleanest aquifers lower than dirty black coal. Some 2.7 million hectares of New South Wales are covered by coal mining and exploration licences mostly in the fertile populous areas around Sydney and Newcastle, out past Mudgee and up the Hunter towards Merriwar and Tamworth. In just a few months, there's been Adani in Queensland approved on native land without permission, Shenhua approved on black fertile soil near Tamworth, Bulga undermining the pretty town and twice rejected in court has been approved after a law change to suit, Berrima expected to cover the town in fine black, black lung-causing particulates, is ongoing as people struggle to save their health and town and farms. Now, by long, threatened by the Mount Penny mine over which the Obeds have been charged, and right next to it, Korean mining giant Kepco. Tomorrow, Sunday, which was actually yesterday, is the last day on the family farm for Stuart Andrews, son of Peter, who famously pioneered natural sequence farming at Tarwin Park in the Bylong Valley. 
the luscious greenscape of Tarwin Park should be preserved as a gem of Australian intellectual property, a consummate man-nature collaboration, a work of land-nourishing art of the sort in which Australia should excel, but does not. Instead, the farm was targeted by Kepco, surrounded, isolated, and finally, two years ago, bought. It was leased back to the Andrews for eight years, but now, after only two, the family is being forced off by legal technicalities, although Peter vows to squat on. He shouldn't have to. Farmers should not be forced into individual battles with giant corporates, open-cut coal mines chewing up their life's work, metres from the family homestead or sucking up the local water supply. It's a big state, New South Wales, with a lot of coal and a very small amount of fertile rain-fed soil. Where these conflict, soil should win. But there's also the bigger issue. The moral case for coal is always argued as a cure for poverty. But even the World Bank contradicts this, pointing out that the, quote, huge social cost to coal, sorry, pointing out the huge social cost to coal if you want to breathe clean air. Poverty, in other words, is not cured by disease. Plus, coal is anyway in its death spiral. Australia should have seen this coming. We should have used the fat from the mining boom to transition into renewables and create green jobs instead of letting miners shirk even local clean-up costs by selling on their licence for pittance. That's the moral case. True, in recent days, as Environment Minister, Frydenberg has softened his stance, talking belatedly of quote, transition, and good, but he'll need more than baby steps if he wants to earn that Archibald halo. There is no moral case for coal. And that's it. Thank, thank you very much, Elizabeth. I think that's a very comprehensive article and it's moving as well. And I, what I like with you is that you're not cynical and so many journalists seem to be very cynical and you keep holding out this appeal to the decency and the, that we'll get it right. How do you do that? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of, I feel sort of heartbroken these days and I, I, I feel cynical quite often, but I, um, you know, I think what's interesting about it is the way we misunderstand ourselves we it's as though we think we're some sort of machine that just wants you know fast roads and big buildings and lots of money but we all know that that's not the truth and so i keep thinking if we can just see this properly and understand ourselves properly we'll recognize that we have this deep love for nature and and actually we do care about these things very much um and even at a practical level, we care very much about whether we've got clean air and water to to breathe, but and to drink. But but in a you know in a bigger way, we we actually I think we're better preachers than we give ourselves credit for in some curious way. And I don't I don't have much evidence, <laughs> I have to say, but I do believe that. Well, we have just been talking this evening with uh, some people from Playback Theatre and someone from an organisation called Pol Positive Charge is working with local councils and they're all mm. talking about the importance of telling stories and I especially liked your article because it referred to all those people at the end who we have interviewed who are doing heroic mm. things, especially out in the country, mm. far from the gaze of most people in big cities, but that's heroic. Some of them are elderly now and who knows how mm. they can keep going. But yeah. I still hope that those bigger Danish and and things will be stopped. They must stop because, you know, it's too late in history for it. Oh, look, I think they will. Um, I, I hope they stop, yeah, before it destroys everything that we hold dear. I was up there yesterday 
in the Bylong Valley at the open day for Peter Andrews Farm, and I think, oh my God, I cannot believe that they're actually proposing to just turn this into a big black hole. The beautiful, fertile valley with this big spreading farmhouse and, you know, floodplains which they've worked on for 40 years and soil is so black because they've just been enriching it for all that time. And, and I think uh, it's hard to believe that people will just come and willfully dig it up. And I, I think, I mean, my feeling is that in the end we'll be saved by the economics of coal more than the morality of it, which is sort of a shame, I suppose, in a way. But um, I think it's a bit like the end of slavery, you know, which which died because of it stopped making being a, a viable mm. economy. Um, mm. I suspect that it's the same here. But I, of course, like all of us, I hope that it happens soon enough both to save the climate, um, what we have left of it and and the you know the fertile soils that we love and all of this beautiful investment of human energy which i also love mm. well just on the theme of tonight we're talking about cultural voices you know like how do the cultural events rather than these sort of arid q and a's with you know very in, mm. well informed speaker at the front uh, that's a bit arid but you, you know, you talk about Bailong, I imagine that was rather festive, even though the writing's absolutely on the wall there. A the lot of the friends, mm. I imagine, would all have been gathered there. Mm. Uh, what, do you, what do you think our culture is doing? It seems to me there's a lot of this now, festivity and effort to just join mm. people together. Mm. What, what was the atmosphere there and what do you think about that? Well, look, there's an enormous, at that sort of at ground level, there's, I think there's an enormous amount of hope because people you know, do see it and are recognizing that we need to change and that there are all sorts of um, imperatives in, in so many different fields and ways that prove to us that not only that we want, that we need to, but that we want to. And in some curious way, we're all being betrayed by our governments. And I think that's really interesting because it's as though we find it impossible to vote in a way that we know to be truthful um hmm, yes. admittedly we have a fairly um, thin pickings and politicians but uh, you know i think it's a, it's a very interesting conundrum and I, I don't know where that's going but i you know one of the people at this thing yesterday was Nell schofield who's now working for solar citizens which is she's been you know working with uh lock the gate for a long time and now she's switched to solar citizens in the belief that um you know just getting everybody voluntary to switch to solar is going to be half the battle, and that and that fighting at that very local ground level is is. I mean, it's not everything, and clearly we need countries to change as well. But humans just voting with their feet seems to be more positive and more possible somehow at the moment than getting big, big you know, high level change. Well, that's exactly. We've had Lucy Best here from Positive Charge, and they work with councils. They've got, mm. you know, many eight councils in New South Wales and seventeen councils in Victoria signed up to get, you know, the sort of solar panels rolled out, especially in low-income households. So, mm. you know, it'll it'll happen. But I and think that's happening, and I think again <clears throat> that will start to become an economic thing, and people will just see that it's just it's stupid to do anything else. Yeah. And as more people, you know, leave the grid, the cost of remaining there will will increase per kilowatt hour so so the incentive will increase and i think it'll become a snowballing thing and and so i, I sort of at that level i do feel hopeful you know i think it's we're we're not i mean we act like idiots sometimes but <laughs> we're, not, we're not completely stupid as as creatures it's just we've got this ridiculous 
sort of primate need to fight and compete over things when when we should really be cooperating and you know being creative. Mm. Um, okay. Well, thank you very much for talking to us and really thank you for reading that. It was a beautiful reading and I, you know, hope the podcast will reach a lot of people. It's a real pleasure and thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Elizabeth Farrelly, a Fairfax journalist who you might like to follow, listeners. She, um, I saw her face in The Age on the Saturday Age. I think you just go to... um, Fairfax Online. I don't think, I don't know that she's actually published in The Age, but she's a Sydney journalist, Elizabeth Farrelly. Okay, we've still got Lucy with us, and um, uh, we, we, we have just a few more minutes. Lucy, um, what did you, uh, do, do you have anything more you'd like to say to the audience um, who are listening to us, especially about councils, just at the nitty-gritty level of how they can take action? Because I think a lot of people feel, oh, it's too hard, solar power. That would be too much organising for me, and I wouldn't know which company to choose. How, how just Take us through the process whereby people might get that sort of you know empowerment yeah from you. so the, the the two biggest barriers i think are the the time and the perceived the idea that it'll take too much time i'll have to fill in lots of forms mm. or i'll have to be home or i'll have to do all this research um and the other one is trust how do i know who to trust you do hear lots of horror stories um so by council endorsing a program like ours and by council explaining to people that we've done this procurement and we've checked everything out and you can you can trust the supplier because we've done all these checks and measures but you've also got us to support you all the way through so should anything go wrong we're the ones that accept liability and, oh. and take that on and um even just simple things like um it wasn't wasn't through one of our suppliers it was actually the re- energy retailer had increased someone's tariff for their power they were buying back once they installed solar um, and what they weren't giving them their feed-in tariff and they just phoned and I gave them the number for the ombudsman and they phoned me back about three weeks later and said they just had a check from AGL for several thousand dollars that oh. they were owed so just knowing that they can call us and council just being yeah. able to endorse us gives people that trust and it also saves people time <laughs> that's exactly that's the headache that a lot of people feel I haven't got the time and I haven't got the desire really to engage with them we make ourselves very busy and then it becomes our excuse for not doing things we actually want to do (laughs) well what about the feed-in tariff that might be just one we might have just one minute for you to explain to when that comes to an end at the end of this year feed-in tariffs what what advice do you give people so there were people who were on the premium feed-in tariff and that doesn't end until the end of 2023 um however most of those people because solar was a lot more expensive then got much smaller systems they would probably find if they did the calculations that it's paid for itself already uh, and if they're not getting much of a feed-in tariff and they're using all that power it's probably worth considering increasing their size then the middle suite of people are the ones on the transitional feed-in tariff which was around 27 cents per kilowatt hour which is roughly the same as what they'd be buying back so a couple of things they'll need to do when they lose that at the end of this year Mm -hmm. one is make sure they use the power during the day because at the moment because it's been an equal cost they can use power pretty much whenever mm. they want and as long as they, their generation matches their usage they, they've certainly made a big reduction on their bill the other is to consider uh, getting battery storage but at the moment battery storage is quite pre- prohibitively expensive it's still an emerging technology so i don't encourage people to do that unless they want to do it because primarily for environmental reasons and because they love the technology. They're, they're definitely the early adopters. Yes. So it's more about shifting your usage and making sure you're using as much of your power as you can when the sun's shining. Okay, so do your big load of washing 
on Saturday That's afternoon. Right. Yeah, and set things, set your dishwasher off before you leave for work in the morning instead of before you go to bed at night. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Lucy. And just as you've mentioned that about battery storage, I'd like to alert listeners. I've probably left it a bit too late for most of you, but if you're living near Melbourne University, there's a talk on tonight at 6 o'clock. Um, and it's a Beyond Zero Emissions discussion group, and they are actually talking about battery storage with Dan Cass. And so for those of you who are sort of interested in it, even though it is expensive at the moment and want to know the latest, Dan Cass is a real expert, and that will be a very interesting talk, and there'll be time for questions afterwards. Also for action, I'd like to give you some action that I've um, found about. On next Monday, it's 8 a.m., so before work, if you can manage to get to Collins Street, it's number 120. Collins Street, there's going to be a snap rally there um, about Hazelwood Power Station. You know, we've been talking about it, we've interviewed loads of people about phasing out power, Hazelwood Power Station, and that French company NG is prepared to do that, but they need to have the support of the other owner, which is a Japanese company, and that Japanese company is at 120 Collins Street. So if there's going to be a rally outside there. If you would be in town and could be there at 8am, you could swell the numbers. And I got this message from Ellen Sandell from the Greens in the Victorian Parliament. So if you need further information, please give them a ring. Um, then just to remind you what we've been talking about all through this evening about the event that will be a wonderful um, chance for you maybe to tell your stories and for you certainly to really have an interesting night at Northcote Town Hall. It's Thursday the 11th at 7pm. As I said before, you can catch the 86 tram up Burke Street. It'll deliver you right to the door. Northcote Town Hall. You can book the tickets in advance, but I rang up this morning and the lady said they hadn't. They weren't booked out yet, so maybe you can get to even tickets at the door. The show is called Creating a Climate for Change, and the panel will be Lucy Best, who we heard tonight, Professor Rob Adams from the City of Melbourne, and Beyond Zero Emissions CEO Stephen Bygrave, followed by Playback Theatre, dramatising your stories. So that's the um, what to do this week. Um, Thank you tonight to the team, Teddy, Jody, Jane and Roger, and also to our guests, Danny Diesendorf, Lucy Best and Elizabeth Farrelly. My name's Vivian Langford, and we will be back next week at 5pm for the Beyond Zero Emission show on climate action. So now, stay tuned for Save Albert Park.